Hi, welcome to Bookie. Today we will unlock the world's first science fiction novel, Frankenstein, or, The Modern Prometheus. In reality, looking at this novel through modern eyes, the science is imprecise. So, why does it still stand as the first work of science fiction? This is primarily due to the novel's central premise, the scientific attempt to unlock the secrets of life through experiment, leading to the creation of artificial humans. This scenario established a fundamental paradigm for later science fiction stories. These required a science-based fantasy setting and needed to include aspects such as technological devices, unknown civilizations, or scientific events. All these elements have subsequently become common features of the genre. Critical thinking about technology is also at the core of the novel. This type of thought has since become a key theme in science fiction. In Frankenstein, Shelley tells us that going too far with science and pursuing inquiry to the point of obsession, can lead to disaster. Frankenstein, the scientist, the novel's protagonist, crosses the bridge between life and death, commanding the ability to create life. However, he lacks the strength of character to take responsibility for the life he has created. The message is that when out of control, free of the constraint, and of ethical and moral considerations, technology can eventually become a sharpened blade that harms both the scientist and humanity as a whole. Frankenstein is, of course, above all more a prophecy than a parable. Scientific and technological developments are Mary Shelley's concern. She speculates regarding science's development and reflects on the tension between technological capacity and human morality. Even after 200 years, her thoughts continue to serve as a warning today. The story has a timeless charm and merits repeated reading. We will consider the effect of the novel from three viewpoints. Part 1, The Plot. Part 2, The Novel's Artistic Features. Part 3, Probing the Book's Thematic Complexity. Part 1, The Plot. The novel begins with an account of the exploits of Robert Walton, an Arctic explorer. His adventures are presented to the reader in the form of four letters. From the letters, we can discern that this young man longs for companionship, and that he is determined to conquer nature, even at the cost of his life. In the first three letters, we learn that Walton's voyage is proceeding as planned. But in the fourth letter, adversity besets the smooth running of the adventure when Walton and his crew are trapped by floating ice. They have to stay where they are, waiting for the ice to melt and break up. At about two o'clock in the afternoon, a mist clears, and the crew can see dogs pulling sledges northward on the ice, about half a mile away. The man driving the sledge attracts the crew's attention. This figure's shape is humanoid, but he is exceptionally tall. To the crew, he seems more like a monster than an average person. The company of sailors are surprised. They keep an eye on the monster's movements. While the ship remains trapped in the ice, it is impossible for them to track him down. The following morning, the sky is gray. They see a second sledge coming. On this occasion, a regular man is the driver. Eventually, he slides up to the boat on the ice. This poor man is extremely weak, exhausted, and nearly frozen. When he learns that the ship is bound for the North Pole, he agrees to come on board. After some time together, Walton gradually gains the stranger's confidence. Then, when the two men are talking about exploration, suddenly, when Walton shares his desire to tame nature at all costs, his guest, on hearing this, puts his face in his hands and weeps. After a long pause, he asks, Unhappy man! Do you share my madness? In order to deter Walton from following in his own disastrous footsteps, the guest agrees to tell him about his own experiences, a story as strange and terrifying as a storm. At this moment in the book, the narration shifts from Walton to this stranger whose name is Victor Frankenstein. Frankenstein comes from a celebrated family in Geneva. His parents are kind. They adopt an orphan named Elizabeth, 
in addition to raising Frankenstein and his two brothers. The boys refer to Elizabeth as their cousin. From an early age, Frankenstein exhibits a thirst for knowledge, especially a yearning to explore the mysteries of heaven and earth. By nature, he is a loner, but with one intimate friend, Henry Clerval. Clerval is an adventurer, generous, gentle, proud, and benevolent. With a supportive family and a good friend, naturally, Frankenstein enjoys a happy childhood. But, a single wrong step brings misfortune. At age 13, Frankenstein goes on a trip with his parents. On this visit, he encounters the works of Cornelius Agrippa, a German mystic, and he becomes interested in the ancient sciences and phenomena like the Philosopher's Stone, the Elixir of Life, and the methods of summoning ghosts or devils. From that point on, without hesitation, he becomes a faithful believer in the dark arts. At the age of 17, his mother dies. Afterwards, Frankenstein leaves to study at the University of Ingolstadt in Germany. Following his arrival at this sanctuary of modern science, as many of the professors emphasize the impracticality of ancient scholars, Frankenstein's desire to explore their approaches only grows more intense. He is determined to forge a new path in natural science, to reveal the mystery of life itself to the world. Passionately, the young man begins to devote himself to the study of natural science, committing every waking hour, day and night, to this pursuit. With his particular interest in the origin of life, he forgets to eat and neglects to rest. He spends his days and nights in tombs and morgues. He observes how flesh decays, studying how maggots eat away brains, examining life and analyzing the causes and details of death. His fanatical research continues, until one day, a flash of lightning pierces the darkness of his thoughts, tearing through the fog that had been haunting his mind. In this flash, Frankenstein learns the secret to bringing the dead back to life. In his excitement, he forgets his morality. Obsessively, he visits tombs and graves, collects bones, and tortures animals. He is unable to stop doing these cruel things. Finally, at one o'clock on a gloomy night, as the rain beats against the windows and the dying candles flicker, the body he had made out of various body parts opens its eyes. What kind of life is this? The figure is tall, about eight feet. The monster's yellow skin barely covers the muscles and blood vessels beneath. The dull, pale yellow eyes are set into a withered face. The hard, black lips are ghostly and hideous. Frankenstein is terrified and disgusted by what he has created, and flees out the door. When, early the following morning, a troubled Frankenstein is wandering the streets, he happens to meet his former friend, Clerval, who has come to study in the town. Frankenstein takes his friend back to his house, all the while worried that the monster will suddenly loom up in front of him. Discovering that the monster has escaped, to his friend's horror, the anxiety causes Frankenstein to collapse in a faint. When he wakes up again, Frankenstein finds himself confined in a hospital room with a nervous fever. Clerval takes good care of his old friend during Frankenstein's several months in hospital. He nurses Frankenstein back to life. But, it is clear that Frankenstein's environment has become a breeding ground for fear. He constantly worries that the monster will someday return to find him. Everyone will discover that he created an abomination. So, Frankenstein decides to return to his family. But, before he has time to leave, he encounters further misfortune. His father writes that his youngest brother, William, has been strangled. Frankenstein hurries home, deeply upset. However, he does not realize that this is only the first small part of a miserable fate that awaits him. Traveling through the night, Frankenstein finally arrives in Geneva. He decides to visit the scene of his brother's murder. The thunder crashes, and the rain pounds down. A looming figure is illuminated by a flash of lightning. In horror, Frankenstein recognizes the monster. The monster's appearance near to the crime scene seems suspicious. 
Frankenstein suspects that the monster is William's murder. William was still a child, and other than this creature, how could anyone harm an innocent child? Frankenstein feels a sense of great remorse that he has caused his own brother's death by bringing this devil into the world. Frankenstein receives yet another piece of bad news when he gets home. The mate, Justine Moritz, whom Frankenstein grew up with, and who is like a sister to whom has been arrested for the murder. Although he appeals for her release, she is unjustly tried and sentenced to death. Frankenstein is distraught. Dwelling on the death of his loved ones, he takes himself off to the countryside, hoping to find peace. One day, when Frankenstein is wandering in the Alps near his home, the monster appears again. Frankenstein approaches the creature, venting his anger. The monster looks bitter, contemptuous, and vicious. He denounces Frankenstein's cruelty to him and implores his creator to allow him to defend himself. At this point, the narrator of the story changes from Frankenstein to the monster he had created. After escaping from the lab, the monster went into the nearby forest. There he fed on berries and quenched his thirst from a stream. He cried with fear when the darkness fell at night and rejoiced at the sight of moonlight. The supply of food in the forest was soon gone. Leaving the forest, the monster arrived at a small village. He entered a farmhouse. Immediately, on catching sight of the monster, the owner screamed. In response, other villagers rushed out of their homes and beat the creature black and blue with stones. He fled to dwell in an abandoned hut. At least there was a roof over the monster's head, so he was content for a while. At this point in the monster's account, he becomes aware of his neighbors, an elderly blind father and his children. The monster senses his own ugliness in comparison to the attractive family. This causes him to feel sad and shameful. He envies the family's closeness, seeing that they care for one another day and night. He longs to be one of them, to be loved and supported, not feared and attacked. By observing his neighbors in secret, the monster learns a lot. For example, the monster stops stealing their food when he realizes that it causes them suffering. He even secretly begins to help them, chopping the wood and clearing the snow. When he discovers that they use sounds to communicate, he picks up their language. With his beloved neighbors, he learns to rejoice and mourn. He picks up their admirable qualities and gradually becoming gentle and soft-spoken. Later, from the neighbors the monster learns to read and write, and he begins to understand the intricacies of human society. However, the more he knows, the more he suffers due to his deformed ugliness. When he escaped from the lab, the monster took an item of Frankenstein's clothing. In its pocket, he found Frankenstein's journal, a record of his birth. His awareness of his origin makes his suffering even worse. Having learned to read, he senses the fear and contempt in his creator's words. He begins to resent Frankenstein for making him so ugly, so frightening, and so isolated. He curses the hateful day when I received life. But, there is still a glimmer of hope in the monster's heart that he can be accepted and loved. It all hinges on his neighbors, the people he calls his protectors. Their cheerful and tireless good nature is in his dreams. He begins to plan a meeting. Nevertheless, this makes him feel deeply uneasy. The monster finds an opportunity when the children are out of the house. He visits next door and appears before the elderly, blind father. He asks to be taken in by the old man. After hearing the monster's story, the old man quickly decides to help him. Unfortunately, at the last moment, the children unexpectedly return. They are so shocked by the monster's appearance, they automatically assume he must be attacking their father. They beat him out of the house, and move away that very night. Broken-hearted and despondent, the monster thinks of his creator, the only human who has a duty to pity him and make things right. So, he decides to go to the address in Frankenstein's journal. On his journey, the monster witnesses a young girl slip into a rapidly flowing river. He lunges out to save her. 
as he struggles to pull her to safety, her companion appears with a gun and shoots him. Wounded and in pain, the monster hides in the forest. When he recovers from his wound, he swears his determination to take his revenge on mankind. After two months of traveling, the monster arrives at the outskirts of Geneva. He runs into a cute little boy. He feels that perhaps the little chap could be his friend, he ought to be pure of mind, not yet predisposed to societal concepts of beauty and ugliness. However, when the child sees him, he covers his eyes and screams. He calls him a man-eating monster. He claims that his father is a government official, Alphonse Frankenstein, and he will severely punish him. The child struggles and swears. The more the monster hears, the more desperate he feels. He tries to shut the boy up, grabbing the child by the neck and eventually choking him to death. After strangling the child, the monster snatches a pendant from the child's chest and slips it into a woman's pocket. We all know the next part of that story. When William is found dead, the maid, Moritz, is unjustly sentenced for the crime. After the monster finishes recounting his story, he asks Frankenstein to create a female companion for him. Together, he claims they would live in the wilderness and leave all humans alone. Alternatively, he will run rampant, continue to do evil. For a moment Frankenstein hesitates, but eventually agrees to the deal and asks the monster not to hurt anyone else. He chooses a remote Scottish island as his secret base for creating the female monster. But now, unlike the obsessive state he was in the first time, Frankenstein loathes and fears the task at hand. One evening, as Frankenstein's work draws to a close, he begins to ponder the possible consequences. What if the new monster is more tyrannical and takes pleasure in killing people? What if the two monsters dislike each other and go their separate ways? Or, what if they fall in love and start having children? Frankenstein realizes that he cannot risk the safety of the human race. So, he takes the creature he has been making and tears it to pieces. The original monster is looking in through the window. When he sees what Frankenstein has done, he wails with despair and rage and runs away again. Later, in the darkness of night, the monster returns to ask Frankenstein why he had broken his word and destroyed his hope. Why do men get to have a partner, while he is alone? Why does he feel a wealth of tender emotions toward people, but all he gets in return is disgust or ridicule? He growls, I will be with you on your wedding night. Now, the monster begins to act out a vicious revenge. First, it kills Clerval. Frankenstein grieves, but he knows the nightmare is far from over. He keeps his pistol and dagger by his side, ready to fight the monster to the death. The monster finds an opportunity to strike, strangling his new wife, Elizabeth. Soon after hearing the news, his father dies from his grief as well. One after another, Frankenstein's relatives perish. Tormented by thoughts of revenge, he vows to avenge those he loved killed by the hands of the monster he created. He travels far and wide, searching for clues that might reveal the monster's location and where he will strike again. Thanks to the monster's conspicuous appearance, Frankenstein is not without leads. The monster deliberately leaves signs to keep Frankenstein's hope alive. He wants to prolong his torment, not give him the luxury of death from despair. Then, coming over the ice, Frankenstein meets Walton. It's September 9th, Frankenstein cannot go on much longer. Before he finally expires, he says that he hopes Walton can help him finish the task he had not been able to complete. He urges Walton to be satisfied with his accomplishment, and not be blindly ambitious like he has been. With this message, he closes his eyes forever. Just as Walton puts pen to paper to record Frankenstein's fantastical tale, an unusually large, disproportionately vulgar, and clumsy figure arrives at the side of the casket where Frankenstein's corpse has been laid to rest. The monster has come, and he lets out a terrible wail. The creature relates his own experience to Walton. He tell how he could not control the impulse of revenge. 
his revenge is compulsive, enacted again and again. Often he regrets his actions even as he's doing them. He describes himself as a fallen angel, loathing himself for his sins. He decides to make his way to the North Pole, where he will burn his detestable body in order to obtain peace for his soul. When he comes to the end of his account, as the ship breaks free of the ice and turns to make its way back home, the monster jumps overboard and disappears into the night. In part 2, let's use the story's background, themes and narrative techniques to explore its appeal in detail. Frankenstein is not only a formative work of science fiction but also a classic gothic novel. The Age of Enlightenment was a period in the 18th century. The term describes a powerful movement arising simultaneously in various parts of Europe. At this time scientists revealed many new truths concerning nature, while humanists actively promoted freedom, equality, and democracy. Humankind's status was elevated to unprecedented heights. People came to believe that humanity was a standard against which all other things could be measured. However, following the French Revolution, people found that Enlightenment promises of freedom, equality, and universal fraternity were not real. Instead, the Enlightenment ideal seemed to embody a satirical picture of human desire and moral decay. Basing writings on their experiences of the world's contradictions, some began to use the Gothic novel as a weapon, to reflect on the Enlightenment's excessive rationalization and mechanization of life. The writers intended to inspire a sense of mystery and awe when encountering the nature or the unknown. Gothic novels originated in England in the late 18th century. They are typically set in the Middle Ages and describe unusual and terrifying events. Their stories often unfold in ancient castles, wastelands, ruins, and other decaying environments, commanding an atmosphere of gloom, mystery and suspense. The narratives are often rich with violence, revenge, and death. But, beneath the horror, the core of Gothic fiction tends to reflect romantic ideology, such as the yearning for a pure vision of nature. In Frankenstein, Mary Shelley exercises her rich imagination to tell a story complete with horror, mystery and death, and revenge. The novel features both science gone mad and an unnatural monster. The creature is formed by the crazed belief of a scientist with the power of creation, but without virtue to match his rational skills. So, from the day of the monster's birth, Frankenstein lives in fear of his terrible secret creation, destined to stay hidden from the good of humanity. Even though the monster has an upright nature and longs for integration and love, he is subject to repeated hurt and misunderstanding due to his unsightly appearance. This turns his pains and sufferings into an impulsion to revenge and destruct. As the author puts it, the interest of the story depends on the novelty of the situations which it develops, and, however impossible as a physical fact, affords a point of view to the imagination. Additionally, the author's exposition at critical points of the text also reflects the atmosphere of terror and mystery found in the Gothic novel. For example, when Frankenstein is meticulously searching a graveyard to discover the secrets of life and death, the author writes, I saw how the fine form of man was degraded and wasted, I beheld the corruption of death succeed to the blooming cheek of life, I saw how the worm inherited the wonders of the eye and brain. When the monster opens his eyes for the first time, the author creates this atmosphere, it was nearly one in the morning, the rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. In addition to horrifying descriptions, the novel is characterized by Frankenstein's pervasive sense of impending doom. For example, the novel describes a variety of the protagonist's dreams. For instance, on the night the monster comes to life, he dreams that he is embracing Elizabeth, and her lips suddenly become dark grey like the monster's. Immediately after this, he dreams of his mother's corpse covered in maggots. By combining illusion and reality in this way, the author clearly represents Frankenstein's mental state. 
At its core, the author's terrifying and grotesque story urges people to respect nature. She uses descriptions of awesome natural spectacle to contrast with monstrosity. For example, she provides an account of Frankenstein's journey with a friend to the River Rhine. She writes, In one spot you view rugged hills, ruined castles overlooking tremendous precipices, with the dark Rhine rushing beneath. In addition to the novel's classic Gothic style, its narrative techniques are also noteworthy. For example, a flash-forwarding technique frequently features in the narrative. This method of writing can ignite a reader's anticipation and curiosity. Why would this happen? An inquisitive brain may be roused to wonder, heightening the tension of the atmosphere. For example, before Frankenstein starts to tell his story, Walton thinks it must be a bizarre and tragic tale. Walton says, strange and harrowing must be his story, frightful the storm which embraced the gallant vessel on its course, and wrecked it. This sentence both ignites the reader's curiosity and sets the bleak tone of the forthcoming narrative. The same narrative technique also appears many times in Frankenstein's own account. For example, after he finishes telling of his happy childhood, Frankenstein says, I feel exquisite pleasure in dwelling on the recollections of childhood, before misfortune had tainted my mind, and changed its bright visions of extensive usefulness into gloomy and narrow reflections upon self. Of his mother's death, he says, the first misfortune of my life occurred, an omen, as it were, of my future misery. These significant passages serve the same purpose. They repeatedly deepen the reader's curiosity. The effect is to make the story's telling more engaging. Another feature worth considering is the layered structure of the three nested narratives as they play out through the novel. The outermost character is Walton, the leader of the Arctic expedition. His descriptions of what he sees during the expedition are laid out in the four letters he writes to his sister. The second layer tells the story of Frankenstein by himself, the scientist who Walton saves and takes on board. He tells the story of the life he created and the deaths he suffered, in order to persuade Walton not to repeat his mistakes. The main character in the central layer is the monster, the life Frankenstein created in the second layer. The monster's story reveals how repeated encounters with hatred and ostracization turn his original good nature into a thirst for violent and crazed revenge. The three layers of stories, nested within each other, take the reader on a journey to uncover the truth. As the French literary critic Gerard Jeannette once said, any event a narrative recounts, is at a diegetic level immediately higher than the level at which narrating act producing this narrative is placed. This is true in Frankenstein, where Walton's four letters are the prologue and setting for Frankenstein's story, Frankenstein's narration is the prologue and background to the monster's description of his experience. In all three layers, the author writes in the first person, which turns each narrative into a story that a character is telling. This makes it more believable. Walton, the expedition leader's story, seems insignificant. Nevertheless, he is the most important witness in the book. This is another aspect of the author's skillful craft. Walton's sighting of a mysterious monster passing initiates the narrative. This introduction makes Frankenstein's subsequent account feel more real and believable. It all ends with Walton confronting the monster. Once again, the encounter in the outer narrative confirms the truth of the entire story. The author suggests Walton has a lot in common with Frankenstein. The similarity serves two purposes. First, it provides a plausible reason why Frankenstein confides in Walton. And it tells the reader that Frankenstein is not alone in his ambition to conquer nature. Part 3 Probing the Book's Thematic Complexity Now that we know more about this novel's construction let's return to the story, take a closer look at the two main characters, and find out more about what the author intends the reader to understand. First, let's analyze the monster. He is taller than ordinary people, with a hideous appearance. Everyone who sees him for the first time is frightened out of their wits and runs away. 
But contrary to their impression, he starts his life with a pure and good heart. When he learns that stealing food from his neighbors causes them suffering, he stops doing it. When he finds out that his neighbors depend on firewood to live, he secretly helps them chop wood, clear snow, and do chores. He is happy when his neighbors are happy, and empathizes when they are sad. But, he is never human. Human children are a fusion of their two parents, the fruits of both sexes. Conventionally, they are cared for and reared by their parents, relatives, or social welfare institutions from birth. But, the monster has nothing. He was not born naturally. He has no mother or father. His only connection to the world is his creator, a man who is disgusted by him and despises him. The monster's intrinsic nature is inhuman. On the surface, it seems that people reject him because of his ugly appearance. In fact, humanity's rejection is rooted in the fact that humans can immediately tell that the monster does not share their innate nature. However, the monster is also different from the mechanical beings that our technology usually creates. He is born with emotions and humanity. As a result, he shares the joys and sorrows of others, feels inferior and sad because of his ugliness, and naturally wants to be accepted and loved by others. Once rejected, he becomes a vengeful slave to his own emotions, agonizing over his sins. In this regard, the monster is exactly the same as his creator. Under the guise of reason, Frankenstein is essentially a slave to his emotions. As a child, Frankenstein is a passionate boy. Under the influence of kindness and purity of Elizabeth, his adoptive sister and later his wife, he can be warm and gentle. However, once he is separated from the comforting influence of relatives and friends, he immediately becomes a slave to his impulsive instincts and passions. In his quest to discover the mysteries of life and death, he works tirelessly, exhausting himself day after day. He lurks in the graveyard day and night, watching life decay. His companions are corpses, death, and cadavers in the slaughterhouse. He is immune to the horrifying nature of what he is doing, forgetting the warmth of the family he left behind. There is no doubt that Frankenstein is a madman with an ambition to overcome nature, but he is not alone. The expedition leader, Walton, is the same sort of person. In order to conquer nature, they are willing to sacrifice everything, possessions, the cares of their loved ones, even life itself. In their quest, they ignore and abandon all the other beautiful things in the world. Such dangerous ambitions are not good for humanity. As Frankenstein puts it, if the study to which you apply yourself has a tendency to weaken your affections, and to destroy your taste for those simple pleasures in which no alloy can possibly mix, then that study is certainly unlawful, that is to say, not befitting the human mind. Many people define Frankenstein as a modern-day Prometheus, but in reality, the two are completely different. Prometheus is the Greek god of prophecy. Legend tells of his journey from Mount Olympus to a riverbank where he made humans out of the river's mud. He gave humanity different animal characteristics, for example, the lion's bravery, the dog's loyalty, the fox's treachery, and so on. Later, against Zeus's will, Prometheus stole fire from Olympus, bringing its warmth to the human world. For taking fire to the humans, Zeus conceived of a gruesome punishment for Prometheus. He was pinned on a high mountain. Every day he had to endure being pecked and gnawed at by a cruel eagle. Although Frankenstein too created life, he differs from Prometheus because he could not accept responsibility for the monstrous life he put on earth. The Promethean spirit indicates dedication to life, but Frankenstein's commitment is limited. The life he creates is simply the product of his own desires. Now that we understand the main characters, we can further discuss what the story is telling us. Let's look at that topic from the monster's perspective alongside Frankenstein's point of view. Firstly, from the monster's point of view, this is a tale of oppression and revolt. 
Over the past three decades, many researchers have linked the persecution that the monster suffers to the oppression of women or to class injustices and rebellion, conflicts between despotic organizations and the subjugated. In reality, no matter which comparison is made, the essence of this story is an individual's resistance to injustice, a maltreated person unjustly crushed under the weight of inequality. The novel explores one, unable to express the force of their rebellion in any other way, hits out at their oppressor, dealing a fatal blow. As previously stated, the monster is pure in nature, but he finds himself abandoned and despised. In one part of the story, he takes the initiative to help others, restrains himself exercising his moral will. When a stranger falls in the water, he is eager to help, but his warmth and generosity is repeatedly met by others' evil. Eventually, he realizes that he cannot exchange his kindness and love for sympathy and compassion. When his kindness fails to bring change, he decides his only option is to rebel against ruthless social prejudice in his own violent manner. The condemnation of oppression and injustice found in the book echoes the social environment of the period. In Britain, an important ideological and political debate was taking place. In The Rights of Man, Thomas Paine argues that government has no other object than the general happiness. When, instead of this, it operates to create and increase wretchedness in any of the parts of society, it is on a wrong system, and reformation is necessary. Now that we have considered the monster's point of view, let's focus on the disturbed scientist, Frankenstein. It's easy to gauge that his story is also a general warning about humanity's attempts to conquer nature and abuse the weapon of science. The book's view of nature is like a mother who knows how to both reward and punish. When humans appreciate nature and express their concern for the environment, they find harmony and well-being. For example, when Frankenstein is disturbed, he often finds solace in the countryside. The roar of the Alf River, the towering and majestic Alps, trees scattered around cottages in the mountains all bring him rare moments of joy. Clerval, with a deep love for wildlife, also appreciates nature's beauty, expressing his passion and delight. The pleasant scenery on the banks of the River Rhine is recorded in his journal, suggesting how its beauty enriches his heart and brings him endless happiness. However, nature fights back with ruthless force when humans demand too much and try to bend it to their perverse will. The leading example is in how Frankenstein's tragedy originates in his search for supernatural mysteries. When he first opens the pages of Cornelius Agrippa's work at age 13, the deviant seed is rooted in his mind. It breeds an excessive curiosity and fanatical desire to explore. This innate impulse takes a firmer hold when he leaves home at the age of 17. Now ingrained, the tendency makes Frankenstein completely disregard ethics and lose his grip on reality. Eventually, it leads him to brew a potion of unbearable bitterness, putting a despicable life into dead flesh. Of course, in this story, mainly because he misuses the double-edged sword of science, the man who is recognized as a genius is ultimately destroyed by his own creation. Frankenstein believes himself perfectly capable of creating a living creature as complex and delicate as a human. But, in so doing, he disregards all ethical boundaries, frequenting graveyards and slaughterhouses and dismembering the dead. When he finds that the monster is not as appealing as he envisaged, he absolves himself of responsibility. His hatred and fear of his creation grows, and he wants to be rid of it. He imposes his will on others' life and death. His work transgresses and disrespects ethical lines. This grisly story did not spring from thin air. In the 18th century, the author, Mary Shelley's contemporaries, puzzled over the boundary between life and death. There were real people, similar to Frankenstein, in their enthusiastic experiments on animal and human anatomy, and in the use of electric shocks to bring dead people back to life. 200 years later, the mystery of life and death is still a prevailing theme in the fields of science and ethics. Topics like cloning, bionics, 
and genetic engineering are still fields that fascinate scientists and philosophers. It cannot be denied that science is a powerful tool for exploring nature. However, science can also be a destructive human force when basic ethics are ignored. As Frankenstein realized, future ages might curse me as their pest, whose selfishness had not hesitated to buy its own peace at the price, perhaps, of the existence of the whole human race. This is what makes the novel both prescient and timeless. Frankenstein may seem like a gothic horror story, but at its core, it is also a straightforward tragedy. As a brilliant scientist, Frankenstein discovers the secret of creation. But constrained by the limit of human nature, he lacks either the morality of creation or the capacity to foresee consequences. This is the difference between man and the true creator, and it is a root cause of the story's tragedy. Then, the second source of the story's tragedy is the humanoid monster. The monster's doomed fate is not being accepted by other humans. His desire to be integrated into human society leads to tragic and violent conflict. Frankenstein fears that others will follow in his footsteps, letting their curiosity or desire for knowledge lead them to senseless, ill-judged, and immoral actions. He chooses to bear the pressure of his despicable secret alone and tortured. This is the third deep source of the book's tragedy. When these three open-ended tragic factors collide, it leads to the novel's entire unresolved tragedy. The scenario brings a sense of infinite helplessness and sadness to the reader. The kinder Frankenstein's family is, the more affectionate they are to one another, the more poignant and tragic the story becomes as they are destroyed. And, the more lessons we the readers learn in the end. Dir hat dieser Podcast gefallen? Dann klicke jetzt auf Abonnieren und empfehle ihn weiter. Bleib immer auf dem Laufenden und folge uns bei Twitter, Instagram und Facebook. Mehr Podcasts findest du auf meinpodcast.de.